was thinking, this is ridiculous. I mean, surely, surely you all can let, I mean, I've already jumped through your, you know, your hoop of the wigology. Surely you can allow me, I'm licensed now. Surely I can bring people in to train them. And now you're requiring the same thing. And at that time I was thinking, this is just, this is just crazy. This is ridiculous. And I didn't, and I was thinking, what am I gonna do? I literally didn't know what to do at that point because I couldn't keep my physically, I was not going to be able to keep working like I was working. And it was, and it was just an easy fix. All I needed to do was bring some girls in, train them, and let them work in the salon. That is Melanie Armstrong. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is economic opportunities, and it's a little different from our normal podcasts. Instead of walking through one of our many priority initiatives, explaining how it breaks barriers, how it reflects our belief in equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, and self-actualization, I want to give you a story about a profile in courage. A story of genuine grit. This is the story of Melanie Armstrong told by Melanie Armstrong, who spent more than 10 years fighting and breaking barriers in the state of Mississippi so she could live a life of fulfillment. She's an inspiration for everyone or anyone who has faced or is facing what seems like insurmountable obstacles. Her story shows that it's possible to overcome them. What I want to do with this podcast is really dig into your story because it is, it's, it's a powerful story of one person and dedication to their craft and overcoming and, and just breaking through the barriers that we talk about breaking through. And there's, there's a lot of talk about this is what we do. I want to hear how you did it. So t if you don't mind, just start at the beginning and tell me your story. Okay, so I was, um, my story at the beginning is I was seeking something entrepreneurially that I could do to provide a living for my family. I decided that I wanted to, uh, and I, and I kind of use the word drop out of college, but I wanted to, I wanted to go a different way with my career path. And I was in college at the time and decided that for me, being an entrepreneur just felt like a better fit. So I had an experience. You want the short version, I should say, or the, or the no, longer version? We want the details. Okay, you want the details. Great. So I was married and uh, decided to go a different career path. And uh, whatever I chose, it would have to be something that I felt like could provide a, a you know, a decent living for, for myself and my family. And I decided to um, I decided to get my hair braided at the time because I was having some issues with my hair. It was uh, damaged, and you know how women are we we're very passionate about our hair. Well, it's so not it's not just women. I mean, 
Oh yeah, you're right about that. You're right about. It. I think we started it though. Uh, <laughs> so all this time, I'm having these thoughts about doing something entrepreneurially, having issues with my hair, and I was seeking professional braiding services. But there were not any in my city of Tupelo. So that meant that I was going to have to travel. So I found a a salon in Memphis, Tennessee, which because at the time Memphis, it was illegal to braid hair there, too. But the young lady who had who was braiding was also a cosmetologist. So she was legally able to braid and practice cosmetology, of course. So I made an appointment. I drive, uh, my husband drives me an hour and a half to Memphis and I'm in the chair. I'm getting my hair braided. Exactly 50 minutes later, she was done. She turns my chair to the mirror and it was like all the lights in the room came on. And I knew then it was like there was just the connecting of the dots. I was, you know, this, this, these entrepreneurial thoughts I was having mixed with having issues with my hair but now I'm looking in the mirror and I look and I'm totally transformed I mean I I literally look you know just amazing to myself and right then the, the dots were connected and I said to myself I want to be a professional hair braider there's not one in my there's not a professional braiding salon in my city and if I can make people um, look and feel as amazing amazing as I look and feel right now, this is exactly what I wanted to do. On top of the fact that I paid her $75 and it only took her 50 minutes. And I thought that that was pretty good. So that meant to me, I equated that as she made $75 an hour on average. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I was on the way out the door, there were several other people waiting to receive services as well. And I just began, I just began to kind of do some calculations. Well, you know, they were paying $75 and it only took 30, 50 minutes to braid their hair. Wow. That's, that's a great living in a day doing something that you're good at, obviously that you love. And uh, I just really, I just saw myself being able to do that. So the first thing that I needed to do, number one, was to learn how to braid professionally. I had grown up with baby dolls, as a lot of little girls do, um, but I did not know how to braid on that level. I was able, so I was through um, just a course of events, I was able to find a professional hair braider in Atlanta, and I traveled the four hours one way to Atlanta to take a braiding course. That was over the course of two days. It cost me $1,200. And that was right around 1994 that I took that class. So I come back to Tupelo and what I needed to do was practice. And because practice makes perfect, right? So I practiced and after after about six months, um, I felt comfortable enough to start soliciting the public to braid their hair. So it wasn't really a matter of the braiding skills I really had down before then. It was really my confidence that took me six months. So let's let's talk about where you're at right now. Right now in this story, you were struggling to, you know, you wanted to do something else. You found something that you thought would bring you fulfillment. I mean, this was, when, when you start talking about hair braiding, you're not saying, oh, 
my main motivator here was the fact that it was $75 an hour and that's a good living. The first thing you said was how great you felt looking at yourself. And then yes. the idea of, of making other people's feel uh, other people feel that good about themselves. So that's Yeah, it was playing for me at first. So the, there's there's the aspect of finding fulfillment in your work. You found fulfilling work and the idea of making others feel good was what the motivator was. The $75 an hour is a nice <laughs> nice bit of icing, but this you, you see this. Then you've got the $1200 investment in the class as well as two days in class, as well as 16 hours of, of drive time just to get to Atlanta and back, and then six months of practice. So this is where you're invested at right now to this point. Is that about right? That's right. Okay. Yes. All right. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to make no, sure that no, we were no. both tracking. Absolutely. So I'm six months in and I start to market and I didn't know anything about marketing really. But I felt like, I, you know, the people were out there, so I needed to find avenues and ways to reach them. So for me, I felt like flyers. So with the help of my husband, we made flyers and I distributed them in places where I thought, and I use these words now, not really realizing that then, but in places I thought my audience would be and my customer would be. And that was in beauty supply stores, I would post flyers. Uh, in Walmart at that time, you could post flyers. Laundry mats. I knew a lot of single mothers went to laundry mats, so I posted flyers there. On cars, I went to the mall, handed out flyers and business cards, and I began to generate business. So my place of business at the time was my very small house and I'm I'm talking very small house. It may have been 1200 square feet, but it was really small. Mm-hmm. And I literally had a salon chair that was set up between the threshold of my living room and my dining room. And I began to work out of my home. And it was very you know, it was very exciting to actually be able to do this, to, to actually have people call me, to have people travel from, you know, as far as 45 minutes to an hour away. And so it was very exciting at first. I had to make adjustments with my family as far as uh, we had two children at the time. They were small, so they weren't, you know, in the summertime, I had to uh, make sure either they were at relatives or if they were at home that, you know, that they were occupied, maybe outside or in their bedroom. So it began to even be taxing on my family when I was doing hair because the house, the whole atmosphere of the house changed because it was like a house slash business at this time. So I did that for a while and I decided I, I started feeling like, you know, I don't see myself doing this in my house forever. So I need to begin to think forward about getting a an actual business location. And as I was thinking about that, I said, well, I'm, I know there are things that I'm going to need to do legally. I might even need to call the Board of Cosmetology. So I started calling the Mississippi Board of Cosmetology and saying, giving them my background. OK, I'm a professional hair braider, because this is the title that I was going by at that time. I'm a professional hair braider. I want to open up a hair braiding business. 
what do I need to do? And I really felt like I was going to be just given some simple instructions, but I was told that in order to do that, I was going to have to go to cosmetology school. And I was like, oh, you know, okay. So I really didn't think that was strange at first until I found out that braiding wasn't included in the cosmetology curriculum. So it was not taught outside of a one French braid down the middle of the, of the head. That was the extent that braiding was taught. And I began to think that that was strange. So I found myself calling the board of cosmetology back several times because I was thinking that perhaps maybe I didn't work my question right or there was some type of disconnect. And I wanted to make sure that I explain, I only want to braid hair. I don't want to do anything with cosmetology. I don't, you know, I don't want to do anything with chemicals. I don't want to do anything with coloring, et cetera. What do I need to do? And each time I was given the same answer, you have to go to cosmetology school. And finally, you know, I just, I just asked, well, why is that? Why do you have to go to cosmetology school to learn, you know, to get this license? And I'm not going to learn anything about what, what it is that I'm actually seeking to do. And I was actually given the answer because it's the law. And if you want to, and if you, and if you want to, and if you don't like it, I'm sorry. Yes. And if you don't like it, because I guess I was being a pest at this time to them, then change the law it's the law and if you don't like it change the law I was really clueless at that point I was thinking what are we talking about I'm talking about braiding here and you're talking about changing laws so at that time I was I was getting very frustrated and I called back again and I was told that uh, and I'm sorry I, I, I had this a little bit um timeline out of line. But anyway, I called back again and was told that I could get something called a wigologist license. And if I got that, that I could legally open a braiding salon because wigology dealt with the application of synthetic and, and human hair. And I was told that I could get this. I could go to any cosmetology school in the state of Mississippi and take this course and get and eventually get the license. So that was a, that was great news because there was a cosmetology school in walking distance from me at that time. And so that was the first place I called only to find out that they really didn't even it was almost like they were like, Wigology, who um, is that? <laughs> is that even still a course? I mean, like that's something that was taught like back in the 70s. No one even takes that anymore. And I was thinking, well, you know, the Board of Cosmetology said that I could take it at any school and they were like I'm sorry but yeah no we we don't teach that here and I was thinking well that's interesting let me just call another school and I began to call a series of schools in the surrounding area because at the time that one school was the only school in my city so I called other cosmetology schools in the surrounding areas I was getting basically the same answer then I began to call schools across the state of Mississippi. And I was literally getting the same answer. And I thought, you know, was this a practical joke that they told me this? So I called the Board of Cosmetology back and let them know, you know, what what I was what I was running into. 
And the answer that they gave me, the explanation of what they gave me was that, yeah, it's a course that was taught many years ago and people really don't take this course anymore. And they're probably just telling you that because it's really not worth their time and effort to even try to let you come in to take this course. They may not even be able to even get a textbook for it. And so, I thought, so well, they, they first they put up a barrier. And says you need yes. to overcome this. And then they say, well, if you don't want to overcome that barrier, here's a path around the barrier. But they knew that path didn't exist. They knew that path didn't exist. Yes. Yes. And upon hearing their explanation of what I was being told, I don't I really don't know. Where, well, I, I didn't know then. I'm, I'm more aware, self-aware now. But I've, I've always had this persistent thing about me, especially when it's something I really believe that I could do. And so I felt like, you know what, this school down the street doesn't walking distance from me. What she's really saying is she could teach me if she wanted to. She just doesn't want to. And so I thought to myself, well, let me just call her and be nice to her long enough just until she wants to. And that was that was my conclusion for that. And that's what I proceeded to do. And that lasted for two years. So I would literally call on and off for two years, all at the same time. I'm still braiding out of my home. I would literally call on and off for two years and ask, would you allow me to come and take the wigologist course? Finally, after two years, she said yes. So I go in, I take this, um, I think it's 300 hour course. It took me four months. I literally learned really nothing about wigology because she, she didn't know how to teach it. The only thing that she could prepare me for as far as the state board test was the written. And I, as far as hair, I was taught a state board cut that I would have to demonstrate on a wig. She knew my, my goal was not to be a wigologist, of course. It was just to, to, to legally be able to open up the braiding salon. So I get through that. I get my end up getting my wigologist license, and now I'm able to open the braiding business. How much did that so cost? How much was the, the course? So the course, uh, she didn't even know how to charge me at first. She, she was very uncomfortable. She was like, I don't, I don't even know what to charge you. I tell you what, I'll charge you. And I think she said, like, I don't know, a thousand. And she said, you know what? You don't even have to pay me now. Just pay me at when you're finished with the class. So let, let's, that, that was, let's just recap yeah. here. We're talking another two years of your life just trying to convince yeah. someone to teach you a course that isn't taught anywhere anymore because the government says if you if you overcome this hurdle then we'll allow you to do what you're already doing but do it in a different building exactly and so then 2 years of that struggle and then four what'd you say 4 months of taking a class that the instructor didn't really even know how to to teach to pass a state board or a state test that has nothing to do with what you want to do. Exactly. I literally went into the school every day it was open and just sat in a room to pass time by just so that I could legally get the hours that were required. 
and on top it, of that, you get to give the give someone a thousand dollars for that. Yes. So I'm not I'm not able to work at this time because she didn't offer night classes. So I this was like a full time job, 30, 36 hours a week um, is what it really equal to. Um, even though there were days that, you know, she's, she felt so bad, she would just tell me to go home, you know, maybe an hour or two early. And all at this time, I think one of the things that really motivated me to keep pursuing this path is because I'm still grading at home and I'm making money. But the income that I'm making is limited. And I knew that if if, if I could only just get past this barrier and open up a, you know, open up a brick and mortar and be able to put out a sign and be able to really advertise that it's, it's just no telling where this can go. And I think that was the thing that just kept me motivated. So you get your, you get your wigologist license. What happens next? I get my wigologist license and I'm, I'm still, I'm not quite confident that I can go out right now to open up a salon. So I found a local cosmetology salon and asked them if I could come in on Mondays and braid when they're, when they were closed, they didn't open on Monday. So I did that for, I don't know, maybe a a couple of months and decided that that wasn't, that wasn't working for me because. I would have to go into their after weekend mess that they didn't clean up. And it wasn't a professional setting for me. So I'm bringing clients in and the place is a complete shambles. And so I decided, I told my husband, I said, you know what? It's time for me to just find a building and open. And that's what we did. And so in 1999, I actually opened Naturally Speaking. It's a big day. I mean, that, I'm just thinking about all the hurdles that you had to go overcome just to get to this point. How were you feeling right. at that point? I was very, very confident and feeling very good. I felt like I had been just all of the, you know, I felt I had kind of been chained in a way and you know, I just felt so limited. And now I felt like I was free to really be able to do what I, what I felt like I, I had the capability of doing. Then what happened? So I'm there, and of course I'm advertising. I'm trying to do you know radio. I'm trying to do you know anything, articles and in, in the newspaper, anything I can do to generate business. And uh, finally, it caught on. You know, people were, of course, this this there was no other business like this in my city at the time. And, you know, prior to then, like myself, for actual professional braiding services, people were having to travel to Memphis or Atlanta. So now the word catches on there. There's this professional braiding salon in the city. And so people began to come. So what I do is very time. Well, yeah, braiding is very time consuming. So literally sometimes on just one client, it would take eight. Um, plus hours, eight, 10, you know, even more hours than that on one client, depending on the braiding style. And so I, you know, very, I was very excited, uh, very enthused at first. And then work began to really, really get hard. I found myself working around the clock sometimes, literally, just to keep up with the workload. I was very tired. I was missing 
important events with my children at school. I was missing sporting events. I was coming home tired, just going to bed, getting up, coming back to the salon, just trying to keep up with the workload. And all of a sudden it was like, you know, I'm going to have to do something different here because this is not going to be able to last. So, you know, the, the solution was, was simple to me. All I need to do is train other young ladies to come into the salon and work alongside me. And I felt like because at that time I did hold a state license, Wigology is a state license, so I did hold a state license. Surely all I would need to do now is get permission to mentor them so that they can come work in the salon. So what do I do? I called back to the state board, gave them my pitch in what I thought was an easy fix. And immediately it was the door was slammed in my face. No, you absolutely will not be able to do that. The only way that they can come, the only way you can have anyone work in your salon is they're going to have to go through the cosmetology school and get licensed. So they didn't even offer and wigology as an option then? They didn't even offer wigology as an option. And also the owner of the school that allowed me to come clearly told me don't ever tell anyone that you were <laughs> that I'll come here and take the wigology the wigologist course because you're you're the last one that I'll ever allow. So I knew that that wasn't a path anymore. And she, yeah, and she held true to that too. So when we start talking about a cosmetology course, we know that the wigologist course was a thousand dollars and four months of your time and you said that you were in a classroom eight hours a day. For four months? Yes. So what does a cosmetology course look like then? What are we talking in, in terms of time and, and treasure? So a cosmetology course is the same time. They're just learning the, you know, the chemical sides of it, the haircutting, you know, all of, all of what goes into cosmetology. They just do that for a year and a half because that's pretty much the equivalent of what 1500 hours takes so the state so was I, saying for these for these people for in order for you to expand your business in order for you to start finding some sort of fulfillment in your personal life that you would have that you would have to find someone who spent a year and a half 1500 hours in school learning absolutely nothing about what you wanted them to do that's yes Absolutely. That's exactly what they were saying. I love the way you all put that. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me what you're thinking at that point. I was thinking this is ridiculous. I mean, surely, surely you all can let, I mean, I've already jumped through your, you know, your hoop of the wigology. Surely you can allow me, I'm licensed now. Surely I can bring people in to train them. And now you're requiring the same thing. And at that time, I was thinking, this is just, this is just crazy. This is ridiculous. And I did, and I was thinking, what am I going to do? I literally didn't know what to do at that point because I couldn't keep my physically. I was not going to be able to keep working like I was working. And it was, and it was just an easy fix. All I needed to do was bring some girls in, train them, and let them work in the salon. It's so easy. 
And so I decided, I, I thought about, they don't really come in on Saturdays to inspect the Board of Cosmetology. So maybe you're just going to have to bend the, you know, maybe you're just going to have to break the law a little bit and just bring your help in on Saturdays. And so I did that for a few times. And I felt it's not right. It's, in other words, it was not right for them to put me in a place to have to make a decision like that. And as the business owner, I didn't feel right about having to work under those types of conditions. So I did that a few times and I decided, you know what, this, this is not, I can't keep doing this forever, like working under the radar forever, looking over my shoulders, you know, just waiting for someone to turn me in. You know, next thing I know, I'm getting a knock at the door from the board of cosmetology or whoever. So I, I decided, okay, this is, this is not the answer. So what's next? And I literally was blank at that point. I didn't know what was next. And I, of course, was still working. I'm very frustrated at this point. Then I'm, I find myself pregnant with my now 17-year-old. And I'm at home on maternity leave. And I, you know, I decided to take it. You know, I want to take six weeks off, too, and just be home. But literally after two weeks, my phone is ringing off the hook and people are asking, when are you coming back to work? And I'm feeling I'm feeling very um, pressured because I don't want to lose my clientele. I don't want to lose the business that I've worked so hard to build up. And so I'm, you know, I'm feeling I'm feeling very pressured and I and and I had no choice but to go back to work after a couple of weeks. And I'm nursing and I don't know how I'm going to do all of this. And now I'm, I'm having to be real creative. So my husband's a pastor uh, full time and I would literally be working and he would have the baby. And when the baby needed to nurse, he would come to the salon. I would have to stop working for long enough to nurse him and then go back to work. And then when it got to the point where he wasn't able to babysit full time, then I hired just family members or people at our church to literally just watch my son in the salon. And then I would nurse him. You know, they would just, they would literally sit there and hold him. And then when he needed to be nursed, I would, I would take a break, nurse him and go back to work. So I did that for a while. Did you have to explain to your customers what was going on? I mean, the reason why that they had to wait while you went and did this? Yes. And to my male clients, that was, that was not, you know, that was many times, depending on who the client was, that was uncomfortable to do. I guess what I'm what I'm looking at is, did you did you ever have conversations with them like, look, I, I'm sorry I have to do this, but because the state has these ridiculous things, this is the way I have to operate? I did with some clients. Yeah, I, I did with some clients. I'm not able to have anybody come in and work. So, you know, this is how I'm having to work it right now. And then, of course, people who understood that would say something like, oh, no, go on and do what you have to do. What, what's okay. their reaction to the barriers being put up? They would say something like, what? They were amazed that someone had, I didn't know people had to go to cosmetology school to braid hair. Well, because it doesn't make any sense. Yes. So I guess no, the reason I was asking no, that is it, because there it just seems like a lot of times 
we we fight these battles and and there are times when we feel like we're fighting these battles alone and i was curious if you'd shared that with people and what their reaction was and it sounds like when you did share this you were able to discover that you know this was this was not something that was right this was not something that was just or normal and that people were as, were as surprised or as I, w- I don't know if they were as outraged as you but they they were as confused as you as to why the state would want this and and the reason i bring that up is because it's important to realize that even when you're out there fighting and you feel like you're alone that there are people out there who who share your your thoughts and your opinions and if you can get that message out you can grow your your army that way yes so so you're 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 doing your best you're struggling i mean i'm listening to you and i can i'm as a father as watching my wife deal with a lot of the things that you're talking about right now i can imagine the struggle of of wanting wanting to take the best care of your family as you can and at the same time realizing part of that is maintaining your client base right was that what what was that what was finally the the breaking point where you said something's got to change yes it was because i had worked so hard to get where i was and at the same time I'm making, I'm making a living for my family. It's it's not what it could be, but I'm I'm contributing. Just yeah, that's a great point. Just I I want to really emphasize what you're going through here. You you had a baby, you're making a good living, but you could be making a much better living if it weren't for the government saying you have to overcome these ridiculous hurdles and that caused so much that caused an increased stress in your life that was completely unnecessary so you're compounding the stress of that trying to find that balance of wanting to hire more of knowing you could have a higher standard of living were it not for this this ridiculous barrier put in front of you yes and then you said enough's enough and then I said, enough's enough. Enough is enough. I made that decision within enough is enough. I really didn't know what what I was going to do, but I made the decision enough is enough. And when I made that decision, a friend of mine called. I remember so vividly, it was on a Friday around 11, and I was I was almost offended that someone would call me that late knowing that I had a newborn baby. And during that conversation, that was that was one of the best 11 p.m. conversations that I could have had, because that conversation ended after I had vented all of my frustration. And I think at the it, during literally during that conversation, I was nursing my son. And so the so my friend says, write this number down as we were ending our conversation. She says, I don't know if they'll be able to help but write this number down and ask for Dana on Monday. And on Monday, first thing Monday morning, I called the number. I didn't even ask because, because we were ending our call. I didn't bother to get any details like who is this, you know, anything like that. I just said, okay. And on Monday I called and the person answered the phone, Institute for Justice, how may I direct your call? And I asked for Dana and Dana had been out ill all that week. So literally every day I called. Well, finally on Friday, 
you know, she answers again, Institute for Justice, how man director call. I said, well, this is Melanie Armstrong. I've been calling all week for Dana. Um, I was told that she would be in today. And they say, oh, yeah, well, she's she's still not back. But for sure, she would be in on Monday. And she has your message. She's going to get back with you. And I, before I hung up, I said, oh, yeah, by the way, what is the Institute for Justice? And that is when I found out who they are and what they do. And my initial thought was, why did my friend give me the, the number to a law firm? You know, I didn't see that. Yeah, you know, it kind of didn't make sense. And so anyway, um, when I did talk with Dana and she explained who they are and what they do, I just thought, well, it was like a sigh of relief. I thought, well, great, they'll be able to help me at least do something. And I didn't even know what, what that would mean or what that would look like. So Dana and I had several conversations on the phone. And after reviewing the case for several months, they came back and said, you know, we reviewed the state laws, et cetera, et cetera. And the board has decided that you have a, a really good case to file a lawsuit against the Board of Cosmetology. And when I heard lawsuit, I was thinking, wait, 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 what lawsuit? I, what, are, what are we doing here? I, was, I thought you guys were just going to help me. And they were like, well, yeah, we're, we're, we need to file a lawsuit. And for a moment, I was thinking, I don't know, maybe I'm getting it way over my head. And I began to think about the fact that I'm not originally from Mississippi. I began to think about the fact that I'm from a small town in Mississippi. My kids are in school. I have a business. What is this going to mean? Are they going to be, you know, blackballed? Am I going to have a brick thrown through my window? My bed? You know, it was all kind of thoughts that were going through my head. And I, I was thinking you might really need to think before you decide to do a lawsuit. Well, anyway, all at the same time, I'm going into work. I'm working day and night, night and day, sun up to sun up sometimes. And I'm frustrated. I'm looking at my family. You know, I'm not there a lot of times. And just something rose up and I just said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go forth with this lawsuit. If this is going to be able to remove these barriers, then that's what I'm going to have to do. So I decided to go forth with the lawsuit. You know, I was thinking about the the fears that you had, and uh, I want to hear the rest of the story, but I, there's something I tell I tell my kids, and I think that actually came from Saul Alinsky. I, I'm not sure, but but I, I've sat with my, my kids. The one that comes to mind, the story that comes to mind is sitting with my son at Boy Scout camp and looking at this 60-foot tower that he's got to rappel down. And he is just terrified. He's got to repel down this tower. And I just looked at him and I said, son, you have to realize that fear of a thing is often worse than the thing itself. Yes. <laughs> and so I'm thinking about you sitting there thinking about all these bad things that could happen. And I'm thinking to myself, they're going, Melody, fear of a thing is worse than the thing itself. You're going to be fine. Yes. So I was very, very fearful. And it was, it wasn't like, of course, a scary, fearful, but it was, you really need to think this through. And this is, you need to think about who this could affect. And that was, first off, my family. How could this affect my family? I have young children in school. 
what if the teachers will not be fair to them? What if, you know, I had all of these what ifs mm-hmm. and I felt like I was an outsider coming in, stirring up trouble and, and not only an outsider, but I'm from Ohio and I'm coming to, to Mississippi stirring up trouble. So, and, what, so what uh, happened? Did any of that happen? No, none of it. What did happen? So we go forth with the lawsuit and really nothing happened at first. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't any initial, you know, anything, anything initially that happened. So I got over that. And it was exactly because of what you said. I realized that everything that I was thinking of were, were just what ifs. And what really became what really became my deciding factor was what if. It, it really came down to what if. I, I actually asked myself, well, if I don't do it, I won't ever know what could have been on the other side of the, of the decision of deciding to go forth with it. What was your family and, and friends telling you then? My husband, that was that that was who I listened to the most. He was he was supportive, very supportive. It was of course my decision, male, you know, it's it's whatever you want to do, I'm here to support you, but I know that you have to make the decision. So whatever that decision is, so it it was it was, um, he was very supportive. He never discouraged me. He, he never even gave me the fearful what ifs. So that also helped me to make my decision. As far as really, my, my circle of influence has always been sort of small. So I didn't have a lot of people that I was bouncing this off of. Only, only just those few. And all of those few encouraged me. And, and to, to go forth with, with what I felt like was right for me. So you've got this ally in the Institute of Justice. They've heard your story. They say, we're going to help you. They file the lawsuit. And now what happens? So now what happens is, of course, we're corresponding. There are things that I'm you know, doing little interviews here and there, releases. Things are going well in, in court. They're reporting back the progress. You know, we're doing very well. And they find that because of there was some language as far as hair braiding and cosmetology that was a little blurry. And they figured that that was what they were going to use to actually win this in court. Because of that, like, you know, the cosmetology, Board of Cosmetology, they they found the same you know, the same thing. And so they decided to introduce a bill into the legislation that would make that language clear. Wait, so so I'm sorry. There, there's clearly a problem here that, yes. that we have people being subjected to ridiculous hurdles that have nothing to do with what they, they are actually going to be working on. And rather right. than submit legislation that gets rid of that the board of cosmetology says you know what let's take it one step further and and pass another law enforcing this absurdity yes that's exactly what they did okay so then what we decided to put the lawsuit on hold in order to introduce our own bill into the legislation that would deregulate hair braiders from cosmetology 
if not totally, then to, you know, to a large extent. So Kansas, they were having the same issue and they were, they had already adopted some language. And so we, we decided to take a chance and incorporate some of that language into our own bill. How did that go over? So here I am. I had not been involved politically, probably like I should have. And so this was all new to me. The first thing that that happened was I began to make these trips to Jackson, which is a three-hour drive one way. And initially what we did was we had to, we, we, we literally would sit in the wall, in the halls of the Capitol and watch. Uh, we had a, we had a sheet with all of the, um, the senators. We started with the senators, their, their pictures. And we, we first had to do our homework. How do, how are they voted on past issues? What do, you know, what do they look like because we needed to know the right people to approach and a lot of their pictures were when they were a lot younger so we had to it it was it was it was a lot of tedious work at first so when when the bill actually began to go I guess through the um, committees there were days that I would there were there were weeks like on a Monday I would set out to go to Jackson but I would need to have a suitcase because there was always the possibility that our bill would not, it wouldn't be, it would be on the, the agenda for the committee meeting that day, but it would get bumped, you know, a lot of times to the next day. Or it was supposed, the meeting was supposed to happen at one and it didn't, you know, it was just those types of things. So there were several times that I went on Monday, but I didn't return home until Wednesday. When they finally heard the, the, the bill, was it received warmly? Was it something that uh, they, they clearly so, recognized was a problem? No, they didn't receive it warmly because they didn't understand it. So there were there was a lot of educating. There was a lot of information. There was you know just a lot of talking, a lot of educating on our end to get them to really see what this what this was for what it you know what it really was. And I remember going up to one senator, I don't remember his name at the moment, and I asked if I could have a moment of his time. I'm Melanie Armstrong. You know, I stated the, the bill number and all of that. Can I, have, can I talk with you for a moment? And he literally looked at me and said, you have 30 seconds. And I just began just blurting out whatever I had to say. And I wasn't finished, and he turned off, turned around and walked off. <laughs> I was thinking, wow. Such arrogance. I just hear that, and I'm like, who do you work for, man? Right. And uh, I remember another senator. I'm only 5'1", and I know he was at least 6'3". And so I'm feeling like a midget, you know, already. And he's telling me, I mean, he's he's talking so harsh to me. He's, he's lit, literally, um, there's spit coming. I mean, he's not spitting on me deliberately, but he's so furious that like spit is coming out of his mouth. And he's telling me that what you're doing is wrong. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm just trying to braid hair. You know, I'm just trying to braid hair for a living. And I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't think he understood what he was talking about. He didn't. He didn't at all. So what happens? Did they did they pass the bill? Did it become law? Right. So there was one. Um, th- yes, it did become law. So there was one 
very important committee meeting. I think this meeting that if the bill died in this committee, that it was just going to be over with. And so this was a real crucial day for us. And we were prepared as much as we could be. And all of a sudden, so what our plan was that when they, when the senators were coming back from lunch, because this committee meeting took place after lunch, that on their way into the meeting room, we would talk to as many of them as possible as we could. And so we're standing there prepared to do that. I think we had even started talking to a few like my, by now I'm, I'm a lot more comfortable. I really know more what's going on. And so we were able to, my attorney and I, we were like, you take this side of the room and I take this side of the room. And while we were doing that, a gentleman just kind of appears out of the shadows and he has a stack of papers in his hand. And he said, he introduces himself and he said, I've been following, following you all's, you know, activity. And he says, I have some information that I think will be helpful for you all to put into the hands of the senators as they go into the into this meeting in the committee meeting. And so we take the paper and we read it and the information was that that it contained was at the time tattoo artists had no regulations whatsoever anybody could be a tattoo artist he had facts down there he had information describing that tattooing involves you know breaking of the skin there is blood involved there are needles you know you're using needles and all of this uh, and it was just a one page but he he had it you know, he had, an, he had enough information on there and they were not regulated. So how could you be trying to regulate hair braiders who what they're doing is nowhere near what tattoo artists are doing and they're not regulated at all. And it was that information that we were able to put into their hands and, and say those, you know, make those comparisons verbally to them as they walked in that meeting that made all of the difference. So where's, where do things stand now in Mississippi? They passed this law and you're free to braid and, and you're free to train? Yes. So there are no restrictions on me as far as training for anyone wanting to do hair braiding in Mississippi. There is a registration. So uh, hair braiding was taken from under cosmetology and place under the Board of Health. And that's because it was really a health and sanitation issue that that was the big issue that it came down to. So there's a registration fee of $25 and an application that you fill out. And um, part of that application has, uh, it contains basic health and sanitation information. Um, and that's you're, you you uh, review that information. It's in the form of a self-test. So it's like, you know, true, true and false answers. And once you take that self-test, you um, sign off on it and you post it wherever you're working. And that could be, that's in a salon or it can even be in your home. That's it right now. So you register with the State Board of Health. You pay a $25 registration fee. You take a simple basic health and sanitation self-test, you sign off on it, and you post it wherever you're working. 
So there's still a barrier, just not as almost insurmountable as before. Yes, there's still a barrier. Yes, it didn't completely go away. How long did this take from from the moment you realized that this is what you wanted to do to the the day that bill passed? How many how many years are we looking at there? So the moment that I decided that this is what I wanted to do until the bill actually passed was about nine to 10 years. Man, nine to 10 years of fighting this fight. That's inspiring. Yes. That's inspiring. And I think back to everything that you were going through during this. You're my hero. Oh, <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I, I, um, it's still hard for me to, when people say that, and you know, I, I say thank you, but it was, I don't necessarily feel like a hero. I just feel like I'm just somebody that believed in what I was doing and, and decided, you know, not to give up. That's often what makes a hero is seeing what needs oh. to be done and not giving up. So, wow. I, I just think of all the things that you went through, all the, all the cost. I think of all the time that you sat in that classroom when you could have been making money and all the times that you were working late where you could have been home with your family and all of the money that could have been made if you had been allowed to have people in your in your salon these are the unseen costs this is what this is what takes away from people's ability to live their best lives to live up to their potential to find fulfillment right. and this is why this story is so important because people need to, to need to know that when you feel like giving up that there is light at the end of the tunnel. You just have to keep moving forward. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Melanie, for telling me your story. I, I loved hearing it. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks again to Melanie Armstrong for taking the time to talk with us this morning and tell us her incredibly inspiring story. And if you have any questions about Melanie's story or any questions about the Economic Opportunity Priority Initiative, please send me an email at toppriority at afphq.org. And if you haven't taken any time to leave a review of the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please consider doing that right now on whatever service you're using to listen to this podcast. And until next time, take care and we'll see you then.